Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's show, Donald Trump's Arizona rally offers a preview of the 2022 midterm campaign and perhaps a 2024 rivalry between him and Ron DeSantis. Martin Luther King III joins to talk about his father's legacy and what's next in the fight to protect voting rights. And Democrats and Republicans debate banning members of Congress from trading stocks while in office. But first, check out this week's Offline right here on the PSA feed, where I interview novelist Chimamanda Adichie about her viral essay on why she believes the tenor of conversation on social media is obscene and what that means for literature and politics. Also, we got something exciting coming up on Pod Save the World. Tony, oh, yeah. Tell us all about it. We got uh, we got Secretary of State Tony Blinken on the pod, interviewing him tomorrow. Big get. And talk about. Blinken, uh, I'll miss it. I haven't written a single question for a little behind the. You hear his joke. What do you say? No, it doesn't matter. Say it again. Blinken, or you'll miss it. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Just what? John's been on a what? big run of puns since we sat down in here. They don't know that. Two minutes ago, they do now. <laughs> you know what do now? <laughs> anyway, what are we going to talk about, Tony, with? I don't know. I haven't written questions yet, but uh, I'm excited about it. So uh, check out the Tony interview. Uh, subscribe to Pod Save the World. And also, we're on uh, Pod Save the World on Snapchat, guys. So if you thought to yourself, Snapchat's fine, but I wanted some uh, <laughs> some Ben Rhodes and Tommy talking about foreign policy. You got it. You got it. It's actually very fun. It's, it's, a, it's one little issue. It's very funny. Check it out. Uh, all right. Let's get to the news. Arizona will be a central battleground in 2022 and 2024, which is why it was the site this weekend of activists marching for voting rights and a Donald Trump rally that drew over 15,000 people, including the leading Republican candidates for governor and secretary of state, Carrie Lake, who has called for the imprisonment of Arizona's top election official, and Mark Fincham, a January 6th protester who's running to be the state's next top election official. Wonderful. Uh, per usual, Trump spent most of his 93-minute speech uh, lying about the election he lost, but he also had a couple of new riffs on Joe Biden and the pandemic that came just days after sniping with Ron DeSantis over which potential 24 candidate is the bigger COVID hawk. Let's take a listen. Uh, the big lie, the big lie is a lot of bullshit. That's what it is. We all knew that Joe Biden would be not so good. But few could have imagined that he would be such a disaster for this country. We never even heard the term supply chain. You know, if you talk supply chain, is not something that we even talked about. There are four times more COVID cases. Remember, I'm going to get rid of COVID. I'm going to get rid of COVID. Instead of letting our and letting us resume and that's what we want to do, our normal lives. Biden's trying to bully and intimidate people with his... See how angry he gets? Yes, he... Anger! You've got to listen to me. Listen. Listen. Where am I? Where am I? Where am I? Oh, where the hell am I? The left is now rationing life-saving therapeutics based on race, discriminating against and denigrating, just denigrating white people to determine who lives and who dies. If you're white, you don't get the vaccine, or if you're white, you don't get therapeutics. <laughs> they're so confused at the end there, because they're like, if you're white, you don't get the vaccine. Yay! Wait, wait. we're not supposed to cheer? Wait, <laughs> where, where, where? <laughs> like, wait I was white, uh, and I didn't get the vaccine, but I'm happy. <laughs> I don't want you to make me get it. I don't want it. But if I want it, I want it. And if it's not, it's not fair that I don't get what I don't want yeah. anyway. If they want it, then I want it. It's like, yeah, God, they're children. Um, well, let's start with the speech, uh, which I believe we all watched on uh, 2X speed this morning. 2X. 1.75 sometimes. Coward. So I'm to I went straight notes. with two today. Two I thought it was, two it was 93 minutes. Too, too, too long. That's a long speech. It's also um, getting hard to find. These big, these big tech monopolists are, are striking yeah, down, the, censoring the, our all president. All the libs have canceled all of his speeches. C-SPAN, it's service provided <laughs> by the cable I companies. Oh, I found like some dude's <laughs> upload of... Uh, pre-recorded rumble video uh anything newsworthy or notable stand out to you guys in terms of trump's uh midterm messaging yeah the line that really worries me was we gave joe biden every tool he could want yet he still completely failed the virus evolved and the strategy failed to evolve and it didn't it just didn't evolve with the virus uh he's incapable of keeping up it goes on from there but that really worried me. It seemed like uh, it was written. You could tell he was reading. It. Yes, and he struggled because it's a very. It was a sophisticated bit of wordplay, <laughs> yes. and he and he did later criticize the teleprompter uh, <laughs> operators for not uh, 
uh, uh, buttressing them yeah, enough against the wind. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that was the same. That actually is what stood out to me too. Yeah, uh, we're, we're now on the sixth variant. I wonder which one is coming next. And he just like, goes out. I mean, it was effective. What about you, Lavi? Yeah, that's what I wrote down. The one piece was the COVID messaging. I also, it's, it's you know, we can, he does it in his, you know, buffoonish way, but Biden promised to end the pandemic. He didn't, and nothing he's doing is working, right. uh, is going to be pretty damning if we're wearing masks in November of 2022, and certainly if we're wearing them beyond that. I mean, <laughs> Biden had this message early on about this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. There's a lot of emphasis in his messaging about the vaccines at the time and even later and even now. Uh, I think some liberals, some public health experts criticize that for overemphasizing the vaccines because, you know, breakthrough cases and all the rest. There's a reason that Biden did that. And I think it's because of this kind of thing, because I think the, the retort from Biden on this is to the extent that this pandemic is still killing people in this country. It's overwhelmingly over 90 something percent people who were given access to a free vaccine and chose not to take it. And the further you get away from that message, the easier uh, Trump hit like that is to land. Right. Yeah, I do. I do. You know, Joe Biden is president in part because there was a bigger coalition of people who kind of trusted the science, believed in following the rules, believed in doing their part, were worried for their parents, were worried for themselves, were worried for their kids, and who felt like they needed somebody in charge who was going to be more responsible, who could get us out of this. And if we start losing those people, the people who have been doing the right thing all along but don't see enough progress, and Donald Trump will be president. That'll be that. Uh, we joked about it at the top, too, but the the naked appeal to racism at the top, to claim that white people can't get the vaccine, was just a lie. The truth is that, is that New York State has a policy that allows healthcare providers to consider race as a risk factor when administering antiviral drugs. Uh, because the CDC found that black and Latino people are twice as likely to die from COVID as whites. But he made it into this gross appeal to race and grievance for a vaccine that his base could get for free but doesn't want. It was very, I mean, no, it's not surprising in any way, but it's it was twisted. Well, he did it in both a, a gross way and um, a, a dumb way. <laughs> he, he fumbled the hit too, but mm -hmm. there's nothing, it has nothing to do with vaccines. Um, it was only about treatments, right? It's about the antiviral treatments and stuff like that, about using uh, race as a factor in giving uh, the, uh, the antiviral treatments. You know, I mean, it, you could make an argument that it would have made, that if you're going to list socioeconomic factors, as uh, one thing to consider when prioritizing who gets very limited treatments, they're currently limited first, but then you would have to also add the economic part in as well. Um, and the reason that black and brown communities are experiencing has such high rates of COVID and have for a long time is, you know, there's a lot of other factors involved there, like poverty, income level, housing problems, uh, healthcare access and stuff like that, which are also faced by you know, uh, less affluent communities of all races. Um, so there's like, per usual, there's like a hint of something in there that he exploited in the most racist way possible. Um, but of course, because it was Trump, did it in a clumsy way that some other Republican might have done more adeptly, I think. It just confused everybody, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but I do think like, <laughs> we were loving, I were talking about this before, like, hearing him talk about the supply chains or the supply changes he could talk to them, I talk about, and just being like, we never talked. We never had to worry about supply chains before. And now Joe Biden's there. I mean, it, it reminded me of like Trump is most comfortable as a challenger. And his formula is very simple. It's it's you can call it genius, but it's pretty fucking simple. Right. It's like here's something on the news that pissed you off and uh, you can blame the people in charge. Well, that's it. That's but, all he does. But also no supply chain challenges. Nurses were wearing trash bags for like six months. What are you talking about, dude? Well, there was no you know, PPE in the entire country. You didn't hear about inflation when I was president. Now you hear about inflation. It's that kind of thing. It's, yeah, it's not, you know, you have to overthink nonsense, it. <laughs> it's nonsense. But I think part of the appeal is just nostalgia. It's like any kind of reboot these days, whether it's a comic book or, you know, Fresh Prince. You know, they hear uh, Lee Greenwood come on and everyone's just sort of happy to be there again. It is. Uh, they were pretty happy to be there again. The uh, if you There was um, another piece that stood out to me. It's not the most important thing politically, but pretty menacing, uh, directed at the uh, 
the person who shot Ashley Babbitt. Oh my God, yes. Really terrifying, yes. basically saying this person should, really threatening them in a very similar way that when he would do his threats against Hillary Clinton, uh, basically saying that, oh, if this person had protection, they'd be in a pretty bad situation. Like basically kind of suggesting that that person should be killed the way Ashley Babbitt was killed. It, it was dark, it was really yeah. dark. Uh, and then, but but the reason I brought that up is there's a lot of obvious extremism in this speech and so much of it is devoted to the big lie. And it's obviously where he's the most comfortable. It's where he leaves the teleprompter behind. It's where he has the most fun. It's where the crowd is most excited actually, which is I think worth noting. Uh, but if you put aside the pieces of it at the big lie and you kind of blur your eyes, you can see the message that his more sophisticated advisors want. And it's pretty, it's, it's like, it's um, uh, uh, not to be taken lightly, right? There is a very sophisticated hit aimed at Joe Biden and Democrats inside of that speech. And I think the, the focus on the big lie is valid and important, but we should make sure we're paying attention to the kind of argument he's making against Biden, because I think it is a smarter one than the rest of the wrapping. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the, there's a New York Times piece. It was the piece on about DeSantis and Trump that we're going to talk about in a bit. But there's a line in there that says Mr. Trump and his aides are mindful of Republicans increasingly public fatigue with the drama that trails Mr. Trump. And I do think, to your point, love it, the the danger for Trump here is that it is all nostalgia. Right. And that might work for the 15000 people that showed up at the rally. But in a general election against Joe Biden, like the one thing that would stop people from people who are deciding between Trump and Biden potentially um, from from pulling the lever for Trump again is like, you know, there's some Republicans will say this independents say this like, yeah, I've been disappointed with Joe Biden. But like, do I want to deal with all the drama of the Trump years and go back to all that bullshit and stuff like that? Like, isn't there another choice? And the more Trump leans on the big lie. Yeah, it rallies the party faithful, but it doesn't necessarily win him points with people who might be disappointed with Joe Biden, um, but yet are kind of like sick of the Trump Act and, Trump, and the big yeah. lie shit. I mean, Trump's entire his 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 campaign, if he runs again, will be entirely predicated on people's short memories. Yeah, of course, Tommy, people didn't have PPE. Of course, their testing situation was uh, uh, completely abysmal. He abandoned uh, uh, science for for, for uh, in favor of whatever he could say to kind of solve his ego during this. Uh, uh, during the pandemic, he's relying on people to forget the fact that he is re- that the, the the fact that his popularity has gone up over the last several months is because people have forgotten what it is like to be exposed to him on a semi daily basis. As uh, as we've noted and as Dan noted in message box, like him, his being off Twitter has been very good for him. His take on the supply chain crisis was: there's no merchandise in Tiffany's. You can't Tiffany's! buy a ring. <laughs> you can't buy a ring. That was his, like, so relatable. <laughs> oh, so funny. Yeah, I, John, I saw that line in the New York Times story that there's fatigue. I don't see signs of fatigue. Really? I mean, there's Liz Cheney, but I, I don't know. I don't know. There's some like broad sense of fatigue among the Republican base. I hope there is. I want there to be. I'm, I would like to see it, though. I mean, the reason I know we're not seeing it, but what, what are we seeing? I mean, like they I think it's I think it's their advisors are looking into the polling and looking to the fr- so. focus groups and they don't care about the look. There's like 30 to 40 percent of the party in a lot of these polls that are saying, we love Trump and we want him to run to, for, again and we're going to vote for him for sure. Like, that's it. There's a small percentage of Republicans that's like, we don't like him. We don't want him to run again. And then I think there's a middle percentage that's like, we really like Donald Trump. We're open to another candidate I, and I, we don't know if he should run again. And I think those are the people that those advisors are probably worried about. Sure. Of course. I just don't think there's any signs of fatigue. And I'm sort of surprised. I don't know. It's interesting to see it written, like sort of stated as fact in the New York Times story. Yeah. Gave me a little hope, frankly. Well, that, it, it made me think that there's something the Trump advisors yeah. know yeah. that we don't. Um, I also like how they talk about Mike Lindell. They, they praise him. He said about Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, I always say Mike is the single greatest purchaser of ads in history. They, they praise him, but they're just mocking him for getting bilked by it, everyone in the MAGA movement. Yeah, just a, goof, a goofball, just a kind of wacky goof. Yeah. Uh, so Arizona will be a hugely important state in the midterms. Uh, Democrats need to reelect Mark Kelly if they want to keep the Senate. Uh, and win the races for governor and secretary of state. They want to prevent Trump loyalists from overturning the next election. Uh, Here's a taste of what they're up against from some of the Republican candidates who attended the rally. There's a car out there, and we think uh, the registration, the lights are on. The registration seems to belong to Let's Go Brandon. Let's Go Brandon. Anybody anybody here know who knows Let's Go Brandon? We must decertify. And if our founding fathers were here today, 
they would be Trump Republicans. I can see it right now, Mr. President, George Washington crossing the Delaware with a Make America Great flag at the back of the boat. And Teddy Roosevelt would, ha Roosevelt would have his Make America Great cowboy hat. I feel like that Let's Go Brandon joke was one of those that just looked much better on paper than it ended up landing. Yeah. <laughs> That's sad. You know, he like he tried to like, kind of tag it with the same joke doesn't again. Really, doesn't really make sense. No, right? it doesn't. The, 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 the registration says, let's go, Brandon. Yeah, what, what, the registration? I think he meant license plate. It's a mess. I mean, look, the guy was a January 6th uh, protester who's now running for Secretary of State. I, I don't think we can expect too much out of him. Who, who was that? Was that Kosar? No, that, no, no. I think that was um, Mark Fincham. Okay, got it. Yeah, I know. He sounds great. <laughs> he went to the Capitol he's, riots. He's running to replace Katie Hobbs, who's the Democratic Secretary of State, uh, so he can help overturn the next election. And then Katie Hobbs is running for governor, um, who her opponent, Carrie Lake, wants to imprison. So she wants to imprison her opponent, who also happens to be the top election official in Arizona. And she's in the lead. Car I, I wasn't even going to talk about Carrie Lake because I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is just the Trump candidate. The latest poll has her in the Republican primary way out in the lead. She's also a former TV news anchor, I believe. Which is why Trump loves <laughs> so her. That's great. He said, a, he said he's like she got she got great ratings great ratings on television amazing there was a uh, a line in the uh, Times piece uh, looking at the kind of tensions over the the Trump candidates and it said um, as popular as the former president remains with the core of the GOP base his involvement in races from Arizona to Pennsylvania and his inability to let go of his loss to Mr Biden has veteran, veteran Republicans in Washington and beyond concerned. They worry that Mr. Trump is imperiling their chances in what should be a highly advantageous political climate, which is like watching a murder and saying you're getting blood all over the carpets. It's like, <laughs> no, oh, is notice that... that? Notice they got a lot of quotes in that story. No one who would back up that assertion. No names. Not even, not even an anonymous Nothing. quote Nothing. from Nothing. someone who was worried. They're like, Mitch McConnell expressed concern the other day. What? That's thinking. all you got? It's wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking. I mean, if you're a Democrat running in Arizona right now, how do you handle what's happening in these Republican primaries? We got candidates who are saying we should lock people up who were involved in the last election. Paul Gosar is up there on stage uh, saying a storm is coming, which is a shout out directly to the Q people, the QAnon mm -hmm. people. Like, what? How do you, how do you run against that? I think you're running against extremism. I mean, it is, it's important to remember that <laughs> Congressman Paul Gosar is so out there that his own siblings cut an attack ad against him. They all got together yeah. to run ads against him. And I, I think like there's, there's an extremist. There's a, a special brand of extremism that exists in Arizona right now that I would be talking about a lot. I mean, Ali Alexander, the, the, the organizer of the Stop the Steal rally, was in touch with several of the members of Congress from Arizona, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of the norm there. When I was, uh, when I was doing open mics in New York, I, I'm pretty sure, uh, this was at the comedy cellar and there was always an eclectic lineup of people. And I remember there was one night where this middle-aged woman got up on the stage and she seemed perfectly, uh, uh in charge of her faculties. And then she started grunting and yelling. She had a bunch of high pitched voices. She briefly started eating the microphone. Then she humped the wall. There was a painting on the wall. She started kind of pretending to make out with the painting. And then she said, thank you. And she walked off the stage. And I remember the next person up uh, came to the stage and he goes, uh, is it all right with everybody if I just tell some jokes? <laughs> was it your normal crew, like Foxworthy, Larry the Cable yeah, that's Guy, it. Tim Allen? <laughs> well, it was always a mix. Of, it was anybody who had $5. Uh, so it was a very always a mix. But I, I always think about that because there's this a little bit of this like, <laughs> hey, um, I'm going to try to solve some problems uh, in maybe your life. If, yeah. that, if that's interesting to you. Hey, look, if you want to rehash the 2020 election and argue and yell and have the Internet spill all over your state, that's fine. We can do that. But actually, I'm, I'm just here to do a couple things, and I'm not going to really pay attention to Arkham Asylum. Healthcare. Well, I think I think this is the danger of overlearning the lesson of Virginia and, and Glenn Youngkin, right? Which was that, okay, Democrats, Terry McAuliffe tried to say that Glenn Youngkin was a, a Trump clone, and it didn't work, and you know he exaggerated too much, all that kind of stuff. Well, Glenn Youngkin is different than some of these Republican candidates in Arizona. We can still dislike Glenn Youngkin, think he's horrible for Virginia or against him and say that he is he is not as extreme as the people we just spoke about. And I think that running against Carrie Lake and Mark Fingham as extremists, like you have plenty of ammo there uh, when you're running against them to talk about. You have plenty of quotes that they gave yeah. about locking people up that you never had with Glenn Youngkin. My, my guess is the, the lock them up. Uh, lock him up, lock her up chants don't go over well with a broader set of the electorate. Like there was a lock him up chant about Dr. Fauci, 
That's new. That's weird. That's that's scary. Even if you're not a fan of of Dr. Fauci or Katie Hobbs or random uh, Democrats and public health officials that Republicans now want to lock up, they're saying things like anyone who was involved in the 2020 election should be locked up. Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, said <laughs> we should lock up 300 million people in the country for fraud, which is which inspired. doesn't leave a lot of people left. No. It's so not, talk yeah, about talk about overcrowded prisons. What about yeah. you? And that's that's, that's kids, <laughs> too. That's got to be like. That's a 12-year-olds. Yeah. So who are the 30 million left behind? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> hey, like, I, look, I, I, I like that they're appealing to pocketbook issues, but I also don't want to go to jail, so I'm not going to be with the Lindell guy. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, there is a like kind of uh, past-future thing, too, which is just like, hey, these people are really angry, and they seem out of it, and they're kind of focused on something that happened a couple years ago. doesn't do anything for you now, and it won't help anybody except Trump. Seems like we should have somebody that's focused on actual issues in the real world, not conspiracy theories. And look, we always go through things like, do you want to root for these extremist candidates to win the primaries? And of course, you don't want to root for any extremist candidate to go far at all. But when I saw the news last week that that current Arizona Governor Doug Ducey might jump into the Senate race, I got more nervous Me too. Me too. than when I saw some of the things that these candidates at the rally said, because Doug Ducey is... Again, not someone I'd ever vote for, but more not as not as extreme as some of these other candidates, um, you know, resisted the big lie. And if he somehow gets through a Senate primary and challenges Mark Kelly, I think that's a much tougher race for Mark Kelly than a Kelly Ward or some of these other uh, lunatics in Arizona. Hey, uh, speech guys. Uh -huh. uh, Trump had a line about Arizona where he said it was where the great American West became the American dream. Good. You like that? Oh, God. What is Stephen that? Miller's <laughs> still writing these fucking speeches? Really bad. Where Who's the American West now? became the American dream. It's not, doesn't make any sense. No. It's no sense whatsoever. That was right after he floated a soft the, boycott of AT&T. So. The dream is in a place. Something you what, have. Um, <laughs> doesn't work. So look, you know, a lot of talk about Trump. The 2024 is far away. What can people do to help in Arizona in 2022? Uh, just turn your faucets on in California. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much water left. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I was going to say there's a lot of races to focus on. Oh, yeah, that's right. Our, oh, sorry. Elections. I'm sorry. Elections. Which ones, John? Which ones? Well, look, there's been a lot of focus on uh, Kirsten Cinema and primary in Kirsten Cinema, which, great. Let's go for it. Just want everyone to know she's not up until 2024. Let's play it's, a long game. It's 2022. Yep, we have an we have election in November before we get to Cinema in 2024. And uh, her colleague, Mark Kelly, who has not been a pain in the ass about the filibuster or anything, is up and is going to have an extremely tough race. So he went to outer space. He sure went to outer space, and now he needs some. Now he needs some money to, uh, and he needs your support. Or Kirsten Cinema gets her ideas <laughs> <laughs> to make sure that Mark Kelly wins. Yeah. Because uh, if Mark Kelly doesn't win, it's going to be very hard to keep the Senate. Uh, Arizona Secretary of State. Two candidates, Reginald Bolding and Adrian Fontes, uh, who are running. Uh, Arizona governor, again, Katie Hobbs, who's the current secretary of state, is the leading candidate on the Democratic side. You also have Marco Lopez and Aaron Lieberman as candidates. Um, if you want to run for a whole bunch of local and county offices in Arizona, it's not too late. The filing deadline is uh, still a ways away. I was tweeting about Run for Something over the weekend. Yeah, they're Who great. Who support? They, they help local candidates all over the country uh, run for office. It's a fantastic organization. Um, elections in Arizona are run on the county level. Um, and, and some of those county, like county recorders especially, run elections in Arizona. Some of those positions aren't up until 2024. But you should check to see the ones that are open. Uh, again, again, local and state elections, especially ones that involve the administration of elections, which is what Steve Bannon and the Republicans are targeting. Like, look at those offices. And if you live in Arizona, yeah, you should think about running for one. Uh, and if you live in Los Angeles, what you do is you get on the 10, you head east, you go past Silver Lake. And then you stop at Phoenix. And that's how you get there. <laughs> in between Silver and Lake and Canvas. Phoenix, just a couple minutes, right? It's yes, not... it'll take you a couple minutes. Perfect. And you can knock on doors. You can make calls from another state, which I don't know. Maybe that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's... Now, that'll be fun. I'm excited to go drive. actually Canvas in, uh, in person again. Absolutely. I'm doing it. Absolutely. I don't care what Dr. Fauci says. I'll say this. I've said it before. <laughs> I'll say it again. I am much more worried about long Trump than I am about long COVID. <laughs> that's my that official that position. Hey, it's line. pretty good. It's a good line. Like it's a good line. line. I like that line, too. So Trump's main focus at the rally was, of course, his own political future, not 2022. Um, and right now it appears that the only potential threat to him winning the Republican nomination is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, unlike most of the other potential candidates, has refused to say that he'd stand aside if Trump runs again. The only other one who's refused to say it is Pence. But like, I don't know. On. No one's really worried Come about on. Mike Pence. Come on. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Um, 
Jonathan Martin and Maggie Haberman yeah, just Jeb just, hasn't ruled it out either. Okay. Yeah, right. Uh, Jonathan Martin and Maggie Haberman just wrote a great New York Times piece about the growing rivalry between the two Florida men, which quotes Trump telling advisors, I wonder why the guy won't say he won't run against me. Why do you think, guys? <laughs> what? It did, I think DeSantis is the smartest of them. And saying, conceding to that is so pathetic, is so limiting to your own ambition, to your own sense of yourself, to the kind of like pride and like guts that human beings want to see in other human beings that it's like, seems like he's smart enough to know how dangerous a thing it is to say. It's interesting. I, I'd forgotten that they got in a tiff in 2018 uh, about the death count around Hurricane Maria. I remember Trump was trying to claim it was oh, overstated yeah. uh, and, Trump, and DeSantis pushed back on that. Uh, and, you know, Trump basically, he, Trump didn't concede anything, but he was furious, but he still had to campaign with the Santa's because Florida was so important. So it's an interesting example of someone who stood up to Trump along the way and kind of lived to talk about it. I'm very eager to see how this plays out. I can't tell if it's just ego or a real political consideration because it does seem like the, the outcome is kind of binary. If DeSantis decides to run, it will be a fight to the death between these two guys. If he doesn't, I'm sure they'll be able to to paper over it. So I don't know, as much as I'm enjoying this on like a, a personal level, um, it doesn't make me feel good for the world that the space to run against Trump is to the right of him on vaccines. That's not great. Yeah, it's, um. well, it's funny too. It just goes to like, if either you run or you don't, if you run, then you are willing to run against Trump. If you don't, you don't need to have ruled it out. Well, I think all those people that have ruled it out are serious about it. Like, yeah. I think if you talk to Nikki Haley or Marco Rubio or any of those people, if Trump, Donald Trump runs, they're not even going to try. Um, and I think DeSantis is the only one who's willing to actually make it a primary. Maybe Mike Pence, but I think he'll probably come to his senses. Uh, but like you could see and DeSantis is looking around at all the rest of them. And he's like, oh, they're saying they'll bow out if Trump runs. So if Trump runs, I get a shot at him myself. And and it would be the first time, right, that like the 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 crowded field is partly why Trump was able to become the nominee. The, the politics have changed since then, but it certainly would matter that there was one alternative as opposed to five. I'm sure DeSantis is believing his own hype a little too, reading his own clippings, seeing the polls, thinking I can do this. He's thinking that I can give you Donald Trump without any of the drama or which, any of the baggage. Which, that's by the what, way, that's look, his, that's his, you know, that's his pitch. We have talked about this around various tables for a very long time that the, one of the, the, the great, safeguards we've had over the years with Trump being too stupid, too buffoonish, too egotistical, too narcissistic, too undisciplined uh, to to uh, not get in his own way. Uh, and DeSantis is seeing the exact same thing we are. He's a smart person. How much of a threat to Trump do you guys think DeSantis is? I think that he he's more of a threat to Trump than anyone else in the Republican Party that I can think of. Certainly more than like a Mitch McConnell or a Liz Cheney or like a swamp kind of resistance Democrat. He, he scratches all the cultural war itches, which I think are the most important thing. But also, he's the standard bearer currently when it comes to fighting against anything to do with COVID overreach or lockdowns or whatever. And you know, I think he thinks Trump has some vulnerability there, not just with um, not just with the vaccine, but also with, you know, sort of the early lockdowns. I also didn't realize that DeSantis has 70 million dollars in the bank. Yeah. 70 million dollars. So I think he's dangerous. But I think this is getting overstated because um, DeSantis is described even by his closest friends, in this case, Matt Gates, closest friend in Congress, as basically a weirdo loner with no friends and no emotions. Um, there was an anecdote in Washington Post story that when DeSantis played baseball in college, when he was playing catch with a, a catch partner, instead of asking the person to back up, he would just chuck it over their head and make them run and get it. <laughs> like, he's just like, not, he's like a guy who has no emotions. He doesn't really empathize. Like, I don't know that he, like Trump well, has the Trump thing. Axios got a source close to Trump saying that um, Trump has been saying DeSantis has no personal charisma and has a dull personality, which you could see. So does, does Trump need an issue or an ideological wedge to run against DeSantis? No, all he does is need to say like, that guy's fucking boring. Well, don't you want the Trump show? Nicknames. <laughs> yeah, and the, 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 um, yeah, right. Two, two, right. The two words, right, we've heard from Trump about DeSantis are something like boring and gutless, right? It's interesting on the vaccine thing that Trump basically kind of put it out there that he got the booster has been more responsible than most Republicans in Congress about about vaccines and the booster. Uh, and when DeSantis refused to say that he was boosted, he saw it as an opportunity to call him gutless, right, which is a way of turning an issue in which he's clearly 
to the, to, it's so funny to say it, left and right, to closer to reality than the base. And DeSantis, he tries to make it about gutlessness, about being boring. The idea that like, you know, when Trump says he thinks DeSantis is is boring or, or has no charisma, he is, he is wish casting, right? He wants that to be something that DeSantis gets tarred with because actually, you know, Ron DeSantis is a leading Republican figure. He's pulling at 40% if Trump is not in the race. That is not because he is boring. It's because he is interesting to a lot of people. Look, I've never uh, watched a DeSantis rally or a DeSantis speech, uh, but I've seen on Twitter a couple of times and Republican strategists and other people say, you know, the only thing close to a Trump rally is a DeSantis rally in the size of the crowd you get and the reaction that you get from the crowd. So I don't know. I, I'll have to watch one myself someday because I, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Maybe as we uh, get closer to 2024. I'll but. say I'll say the one thing that I the, the, the like when you see Josh Hawley, when you see Ted Cruz, uh, these are guys that kind of reek of their pedigree. You know, they just they they seem like they're faking it. They're putting on their boots like you don't realize that DeSantis is smarter than he seems until you look at his Wikipedia. Like you don't realize yeah. that this is a Harvard Yale guy. This is a guy that has been plotting and planning for a run for president since he was a teen uh, until you look at his actual his actual experience because he doesn't he doesn't give away the game the way those guys do. Certainly Trump's team is worried. Right before we came in here, Roger Stone was tweeting, or I, I guess this must have been like Getter or something, uh, a tweet that ended, hashtag, fuck Ron DeSantis. <laughs> it calls him... Very, it's it, more of a scalpel than it. <laughs> it, it yeah, yeah. Singed uh, don't burn. Uh, <laughs> hold on, it gets better. He called him a, uh, quote, Yale Harvard fat boy. I'm not sure if that was supposed to say frat boy. Um, he also said he was an unknown congressman with a bad haircut and an ill-fitting suit until Donald Trump made him governor. I know where he was when he was missing... Ask Emerald Robinson, who is the, uh, I think, oh. like a former Newsmax Ooh. White House correspondent. Or something. Like, this is great. I love it. Is great. More, 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 <laughs> more, more. <laughs> yeah. It's also like, I'm sorry, ill-fitting suits, like that's a prerequisite for winning the fucking straw poll. Yeah, Trump's not uh, wearing like a Italian tailored uh, those suits. Are, those are hot air balloons around his legs. Another piece of info that made me think like maybe, maybe DeSantis is onto something reading up on all this is um, how he's courted so many right-wing media folks and that he gets softball questions and and they love to book him on all the shows and he's like the new favorite like that actually that helps way more than what republican candidates tried to do in 2016 which is like court elite republican strategists and and people members of congress was like who the fuck cares yeah, they don't, they don't, george will they don't control anything yeah, you know it's like it's 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 the right-wing pundits on fox and yeah. and newsmax and oan that that control everything and he is so um ugh, and he's just a slimy slimy enough to do this too because it's like He's going out there pretending like my only regret is in March 2020 that I didn't tell Trump to kill more people. I did my best in Florida to kill as many people here as I could, <laughs> but I couldn't get it done because I had the White House in my way, not letting me kill more people in my fucking state. But I think it is like, look, I still all this said, I still think Trump has a huge advantage here. But if you're going to make the argument for DeSantis, I think that the COVID thing isn't necessarily like an ideological fight. I think what he's trying to do is say, like, you, you make the fight about Trump's presidency and the drama around it. They screwed up on COVID by locking down too much. They screwed up the election by letting it get too close. Trump is yesterday's news. I'm younger. I'm the future. You make it a past future thing. Also, I have 43, by the way. Let's put it from you put some city miles on that chassis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said like 43. I'm like shocked. It's Yikes. starting to be yeah. wild to see that I we're He's our age. I, I, you could see almost. A, you could see a message where DeSantis is like, "Trump listened to Fauci. He had, you know, what I mean, like, there's all these sort of gross things you could do." DeSantis, Trump is not wrong though that DeSantis basically owes him his political career. He was a backbench congressman who became a governor because Trump endorsed him and gave him all kinds of backing in that primary. I don't know how that goes over with voters, but yeah. I, I don't it's, I don't it's know a either. Trump it's just, line, but <laughs> it, it, it speaks to the sort of Shakespearean element to this this uh grudge match. It's the closest thing to an adult relationship in Trump's life. <laughs> uh this is a great anecdote for that same Washington Post profile. Uh, a colleague recalled being on a long distance plane ride with DeSantis and watching as the congressman spent the entire flight twirling his hair, a habit he has had for decades, not even stopping to read a book or listen to music. Just well, total really weirdo, huh? sociopath, uh, he's got the, American psycho fucking moves. Well, he's got you need that. To be somewhat of a sociopath too. Got that like yeah. Yale <laughs> to Harvard to reserves to Congress to governor. This guy has been running for president every day of his life. It is the only thing. He, that's what he's thinking about when he's twirling his hair. That's it. He's writing <laughs> inaugural addresses. He's going to state dinners. That's what he's been doing. Yeah. 
Well, I can see I'm, that. I'm looking forward to this uh, this rivalry. Okay, when we come back, I'll talk to Martin Luther King III about his father's legacy and the struggle for voting rights. Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and unfortunately, the backdrop of this year's remembrance is the Republican filibuster of legislation that would protect the right of every American to vote and have that vote counted, the same cause to which Dr. King devoted his life. Here to talk about his father's legacy and the fight for voting rights today is Martin Luther King III. Thank you so much for joining today. It's an honor to talk to you. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. So I think when it comes to protecting the right to vote, the question on everyone's mind at this moment is... What now? Where do we go from here? Well, of course, yesterday we had uh, observed the King holiday and we had been saying, um, my wife and I and and those who work along with the organizations that we were able to assemble over 100 organizations, all of the labor unions, uh, over a thousand ministers who have basically been, 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 been saying it's time to deliver for voting rights. And uh, the holiday in terms of how it was observed was a day of action uh, where people were calling on their senators. Uh, People were signing the petition. And today uh, in the Senate, the hope is that there will be some kind of vote that affirms uh, the right to vote. Now, um, you know, as we know uh, at this moment, there are two senators on the Democratic side who have not been willing to come forth and say that they support. They, I'm, I'm scared, excuse me. They've said they support the legislation, but yet they have not supported a pathway to getting it done because they believe that it alters the filibuster. But of course, those senators also realize that they had no problem altering the filibuster when it came to raising the debt ceiling. They had no problem. Uh, when it came to budget reconciliation issues. So it's very interesting that we selectively decide when we want to modify the filibuster. In this context, when we're talking about democracy, this is not a partisan issue. This really is about all Americans. And 19 states, as we perhaps know, or as may be known, have passed excessive laws to make it harder for people to vote 19 states with 34 pieces of legislation. And as legislatures gear up now, again, state legislatures, there could be another 20 states that may create these draconian laws. So here's my point. Uh, The first thing is we've got to see what the senators do today. Uh, If the legislation does not pass, um, I think that we've got to look at some different kinds of tactics and techniques to use, including uh, going to businesses um, where, for example, in Arizona, uh, businesses or West Virginia, obviously that you know, other than steel and maybe a few other things, but Arizona is a, is a different animal. So my, my point is we've got to look at every tool in the arsenal because we're not going to give in, we're not going to give up, we're not going to give out. This is so, so important for protecting, preserving, expanding the right to vote, and also saving our democracy. When you talk about going to businesses and different tactics, do you mean uh, in order to then have different entities pressure uh, Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin, or just other ways to protect the vote? That That's certainly one option. Uh, but I think a, an additional option is you know, we, we could even get to the point where there's some people that we have to think about boycotting. Uh, mm. That is certainly not something that anyone wants to do, but I think it needs to be factored into the discussion and the equation uh, because business, if, if businesses are not inclined on their own to, you know, take strong positions to help influence uh, these senators that, you know, don't, that, that seem to be uh, unwilling uh, to take a posture for what I, again, we, we characterize it as saving democracy. Of all the Republican efforts to make voting harder or, or take over the administration of elections, which are, which are the greatest threats to democracy in your mind that you've, you've seen proposed or passed over the last year? Well, so the first and foremost, I think just making it harder to vote, period, is, mm. is egregious. In my own state of Georgia, there are 159 counties. 
Um, if the Republican legislature, majority Republican legislature in Georgia, does not like the outcome of the election, uh, they can change the nonpartisan election commission to put people in place uh, who are going to be favorable to what they want to achieve. That means they can invalidate the votes of people who have voted for one candidate or another. Uh, that I mean, to me, that's that's just draconian. Uh, mm. Yeah, there have been, of course, ballot box closures. There have been voting uh, su suppression of voting by saying, OK, instead of let's say you had 25 days to vote. Now you have 15. So these are things that are making it you know, harder. And then, of course, the fact that if someone or anyone could change an election, um, that is that's almost dictatorial control. That is not democracy. Democracy allows the voters to be heard and whatever, wherever things lay or where the chips fall is where they fall. Not someone manipulating, moving vote, votes off the rolls. Uh, you know, in the older days, there were Jim Crow provisions in the law. And what I mean by that is when African-Americans came to register, they would ask questions like how high is up or how many bubbles are in a bar, uh, a bar of soap? I mean, all kinds of questions that no one could ask. Or can you tell me a specific area of the Constitution? Recite that. Um, and if you recited that, they would go to another area. So all these techniques were used to suppress the vote. And what we're saying is these new techniques, although not the same, which basically kept people from being able to register, they will make it harder for people to vote. They're not just downright, you know, putting provisions in place where you can't answer questions. They're doing things like limiting drop boxes. They're doing things like curtailing hours that you can vote. Uh, so all of these things, it seems to me when everything we do today by automation or technology, we, we handle our business affairs, our banking online. Why could we not even vote? I mean, we have the system to be able to develop where it's fair for everyone who is a citizen. Uh, voting should be as simple as can be, not complex as people are trying to make it. You attended uh, President Biden's speech in Atlanta last week. Uh, he's obviously tried privately pressuring uh, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. Then he gives that speech publicly, uh, again, came out in favor of uh, making an exception for voting rights with the filibuster. That didn't work. Joe Manchin said, oh, it was a good speech, but it didn't change my mind. He went to talk to the Senate Democrats. Kirsten Sinema didn't even let him go talk to the Senate Democrats before giving a speech about how she was uh, in favor of keeping the filibuster. What, what advice would you give him about how to handle the fight for voting rights going forward if you were giving Joe Biden advice? Well, I, I would, number one, first of all, say what we've been saying, and that is you were able to get an infrastructure bill used because you used the full faith and credit and the power of the White House to get a bill done. Uh, that's whatever you did. You never deterred from whatever you believed, even if it looked like it wasn't going to happen. You stayed vigilant. And that same thing must be done in, in terms of voting rights. And and I'm sure that over the weekend, uh, you know, uh, that there have been calls that have been going on. And so that's why it's going to be interesting today to see, you know, what happens in the Senate. If, in fact, debate will begin to occur, which is really most critically important. It, it, feel, it would seem like most senators would want to have debate on the issue. The fact that the filibuster has been used to even keep the bills from coming to the floor. And so they can be debated is a very sad commentary in relationship to where democracy is at this point. Yeah. What uh, what did you make of the decision by several voting rights groups to boycott Biden's speech? Well, we we actually are in touch with everyone. Well, many. I won't say everyone, but many who are involved in in the discussion. And I, I thought it was appropriate. I understand the frustration that some people have who've been working on these issues uh, 24 hours a day or, or 24 seven. Uh, I certainly understand and support that. But I also felt that we someone needed to be engaged in terms of of speaking to, uh, you know, to the White House and, and to others. And so uh, 
while we applaud and support, we also need to keep being engaged. And at the end of the day, the legislation is passed. If legislation is passed, we all are joined together. It's obviously been, you know, an incredibly tough couple of years. I think a lot of people who worked hard to get Donald Trump out of the White House are feeling exhausted and disappointed and frustrated that, you know, the anti-democratic forces that gave rise to Trump are, are still very much on the march. And I always think about how, you know, it was 10 years between when your father led the Montgomery bus boycott and when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 finally passed. Do you have a, a pep talk for people who are frustrated with the pace of progress right now and, and might want to give up? Well, the, the thing that I would say is I have to look at w- things that create change that we may or may not understand before they happen. Many years, I encouraged the state of South Carolina, for example, to remove the Confederate flag. It was not until the tragedy occurred of Reverend Pinckney and eight of his members at Mother Emanuel Church were killed that within weeks or days, the Confederate flag came down, that, that, that those in power began to understand, okay, my gosh, if this is a symbol of hatred and not unification, it needs to come down. Uh, I can never, we will never, ever forget about a tectonic shift in this nation in 2020 after the tragic death of George Floyd. And in all 50 states, there were demonstrations, 90%. Well, certainly 89% of them were nonviolent demonstrations or peaceful demonstrations. And yet that energy for the young people uh, is still in place. The the challenge today is we live in a a microwave kind of society where we want things to be instant. And unfortunately, it's not always instant. It it does take time. And I think your example of uh, 10 years from the Montgomery bus boycott to the passing of voting rights, the Voting Rights Act in, in 65 uh, is, 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 is one example. I'm not suggesting that it's gonna take 10 years, uh, but I think this has to be done very shortly and soon. You have midterm elections coming up and that's gonna determine you know, who is in charge in the House as well as who is in charge in the Senate. Uh, so all of these are reasons that a legislation needs to be passed and needs to be passed now. And it, it's, it's, it's pro- probably the thing that's most perplexing to me is that you have two senators who say they support this legislation, but yet they don't support a pathway to get it done. You can't be for everything or for legislation and not have a pathway to get it done. That's to me, somewhat inconsistent uh, and disingenuous for whatever reason there may be. Yeah. Uh, your father might be one of the most quoted public figures of all time. Uh, and you often see people, especially on days like today, cite a specific quote or speech from him to support whatever political argument they're making at the time. Of all the things your father said in his life, what do you think most captures who he really was as a person? Wow, that's a question that is very, very difficult to answer, but I'll try to answer it this way in one of his own quotes. And that quote was, the ultimate measure of a human being is not where one stands in times of comfort and convenience, but where one stands in times of challenge and controversy. He went on to say that on some questions, cowardice ask is a position safe. Expediency ask is a position politic. Vanity ask is a position popular, but that's something deep inside called conscience ask is a position right. He went on to say, sometimes we must take positions that are neither safe nor popular nor politic, but we must take those positions because our consciences tell us they are right. Uh, To me, every day we have to make decisions, any of us. And in my experience, Generally, if we listen to our consciences, we make the right decision. Very well said. Very well said. I, I, I know you were only 10 when your father died. Is there a memory of him you think about on days like today? Well, certainly um, days like today after the holiday and during the holiday period, I have just been thinking about just how far we as a nation have come in spite of 
the moment we find ourselves at now, meaning a very divided nation, which is certainly unfortunate and certainly against what he would want us as a nation uh, to be engaged in. Um, and, and, and certainly thinking that we should be further along. But I think about the fact that whether it was uh, Montgomery, the voting, uh, Montgomery, the bus boycott, or whether it was Birmingham right before the Civil Rights Act, which was passed in 64, whether it was Selma uh, in 1965, where the Voting Rights Act was passed, or, uh, you know, uh, the fair housing legislation in 1968 after his death just a couple of months after his death, he always understood that strategy. You know, he, all, he and his team had a plan of execution mm. and they executed, not necessarily perfect, but they executed that plan and ultimately it yielded results. So what I'm thinking about now is we've been involved in a, in a plan. We, we back in August of this year on the the uh, anniversary of the March on Washington, we did over 100 marches with almost 400 organizations in one day in 41 states. And it was all around, you know, voting rights. Uh, yesterday uh, in Washington, D.C., we marched across the Frederick Douglass Bridge. Mm. And on Saturday, we marched in Phoenix across a, an overpass. And we we're saying, Mr. President and the Senate, you did it for infrastructure. That is wonderful. You now must do it for protecting, preserving and expanding voting rights. And so, you know, as I as I was over the weekend thinking about dad, you know, I'm thinking, what would he tell us at this time? Uh, what would he? Well, well, and first of all, I must add a trajectory, because had my father lived, we as a nation and I think Robert Kennedy as well. He was running for president at the time mm. he was killed. You know, in June, dad was killed in April. And if 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 those men had lived, we as a nation would be dealing with different issues. We'd be on a different trajectory. If dad came today, he would look at what he sees and he'd be greatly disappointed in our political leadership and the political discourse. But that would not deter him. He'd be so excited about the engagement of young people who are on the battlefield many days. Young people are engaged in activism, whether it is environmental justice, uh, whether it, it, it is, you know, uh, women's rights, all of the things that are happening around will it, women's rights. Well, it, whether it is the LBGTQIA uh, community, I mean, all of these issues that we look at, uh, he'd be so proud of the young persons who are engaged in leading to change our nation and our world to make it better for all of God's children. And so I, th I think that's all of that I, I've, I've thought about over the last few days and continued to think about it. And this morning, you know, as we're preparing for the, the day, I am hoping and praying that our senators will do the right thing. I have the same hopes and prayers. Um, Martin Luther King III, thank you so much for joining us, for taking the time, and thank you for all the work that, that you're doing to carry on your father's legacy and fight for, for voting rights and civil rights in our time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and thank you for what you all do every day. Okay. Before we go, we want to talk about Congress's renewed interest in banning its members and their immediate families from trading stocks while in office. You might remember that at the beginning of the pandemic, Senators Richard Burr, Dianne Feinstein, James Inhofe, and Kelly Loeffler were investigated for selling off their stock after getting briefed about the damage the pandemic might do to the economy. Burr is still under investigation by the SEC. Well, last month, a Business Insider investigation found that 54 members of Congress and at least 182 of the highest paid Hill staff have violated the Stock Act, which makes insider trading illegal and requires members of Congress to file financial disclosures. This has led to a big bipartisan push to ban stock trading altogether. It has the support of everyone from AOC and Abigail Spanberger to Josh Hawley and Kevin McCarthy, who says he'll push for a ban if Republicans win the House. One of the only leaders in Congress against this idea, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who recently said this about the ban. We have a responsibility to report in the stock on the stock, but I don't, I'm not familiar with that five month review. But if the people aren't reporting, they should be. Why does, why does yeah. the, 
because this is a free market and people, we are a free market economy. They should be able to participate in that. I think it's weird that she said that while having white truffles shaved over her naked body. Uh, <laughs> boy. Ooh. I disavow that. Disassociate myself. Disavow. I don't disavow know. the comment. I disassociate my, I, my I disavow the show. Yeah. <laughs> Half, halfway through, why, why, why naked? Right. That was Keep it in. The truffles, you had me with the truffles. That was a, you, know, you know what it is? I didn't have something better. colors of truffle. There's white and... I don't know. I found it all disgusting. That's a small point. I found it, frankly, all disgusting. <laughs> I don't want anybody to get, get What these, was she thinking there? Let's get to the point. What was she what was she thinking? She was thinking she got a lot of fucking stocks in her portfolio is what she was thinking. She's, she's a, a fabulously sh- wealthy woman married she's to one a of venture capital legislators of the century. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was she thinking there? So, right, if you're a lawmaker or a staffer who makes more than 132 grand you in, in 2021, you have to report stock trades of more than $1000 within 30 days and if your spouse does it, you have 45 days or like uh yeah. You're supposed to pay a $200 fine if you fail to meet that deadline and then increasingly higher fines if if you keep missing the deadlines to to file these reports but there's no way to figure out which lawmakers have actually paid fines there's no reporting there's no accountability there's no transparency and this isn't just a congress problem the three members of the fed had to resign because they were selling stocks at the height of the pandemic as they're making decisions about whether to like open the spigot and, and juice the economy. This is a huge problem. Here, so it's very simple. If you're a public official, no one's saying you can't participate in the free market economy. Put your fucking stocks in a blind trust. <laughs> I don't know about the fucking blind trust. That's you, what all that's what all these bills are that everyone's talking that. about. If, no, all of them are doing. If that. you have a blind, if a blind, like if you own, if you own like. A huge amount of Exxon Mobil or something, and then they put it in a blind trust. You don't forget you own Exxon Mobil the next day. You don't like you like owning. It's funny because like the trading, there's like it combines this issue combines a bunch of different things. One of them is like the trading on inside information, right? And that's something that Richard Burr did so brazenly and despicably. Um, that's something members of Congress can do because they do have they have do do have access to kind of special information. But there's also just holding stock and making decisions based on wanting those companies to do better or worse. And that's not about trading. That's just about having things in your portfolio. And that continues even if it's a blind trust. There's no like perfect answer for any of this. I, uh, I yeah. guess I just don't know how the blind trust works. I mean, do you have to liquidate your holdings and then hand it to an advisor and they invest it for you and you just get like a that year, would be, yearly report? That would take care of Lovett's problem. That would yeah. be a great idea. Or I would, I mean, I would advocate that you can only own index funds or only yeah, own mutual too. funds. You can't like, so what, what Pelosi's husband does is he was buying millions of dollars of call options in like Alphabet, Roblox, Salesforce, Disney. And like the key to understanding this is these are not long-term investments. This isn't like putting, you know, two shares of Apple in your IRA and holding them for 10 years and feeling great. You are, these are risky trades that have expiration dates. And and basically it's gambling. Like you're betting a stock is going to go up and there's huge upside there. And I just don't think you should be doing that. And, and like Pelosi's husband is making millions of dollars on tech stocks before antitrust meetings. There's literally like TikTokers, YouTubers who track <laughs> Pelosi's holdings and try to match her investment strategy because when you look at the holdings of members of Congress, they beat the S&P in the short term, in the medium term, in the long term. And that's very, very, very hard to do. Here's what annoys me about the whole thing the most. I don't want this to become another... What the fuck are Democrats thinking story? Because you you read all the stories about this and like every Democrat in the House and the Senate, whether it's, you know, AOC on the left, Spanberger, who's more of a centrist, John Ossoff and Mark Kelly have a bill about this, right? Like like Democrats from across the ideological spectrum are like, yeah, we should ban st- trading of stocks among members of Congress and their immediate families. Ossoff and Kelly have a bill that would ban members and their spouses and children from trading stock. Um, so it's like, you know, because she is the one of the most high-profile Democrats in the country and the Speaker of the fucking House, it's obviously going to get a lot of attention, as it should. But, like, is there any reason that Senate Democrats shouldn't just hold hearings on the Kelly-Ossoff bill and, and, and try to pass it immediately? Do it right now. Yeah. And, and again, not... not Because like, it might not, be hard getting one through the House, is why I started with the Senate. <laughs> you should increase the political pressure. I mean, look, I'm, and we're not trying to pick on Pelosi here. Like, so Rand Paul and his wife had not bought an individual stock in at least a decade when his wife bought up to $15,000 worth of shares of Gilead Sciences, it's a, a pharma stock, in early 2020, right after they started a, tr- a clinical trial for remdesivir, which is one of the COVID treatments. That, like, Paul is on the Senate Health Committee. He disclosed the trade 
16 months late. The the fact that he like that should get some sort of yeah. I, I'm not saying a criminal charge. This should be a huge fine. Well, there should he be. He said he's got to pay two hundred dollars. You shouldn't have to. Right. You shouldn't be able to reap the benefits of. Right. There's no penalty that makes not breaking the rules worth it. Right. If a stockbroker did that, they would go to jail. The um yeah I mean I I like the blind trust thing like I I how it works exactly I don't know but for the most part traditionally it has been all right my lawyer is now in charge of this it's in a blind trust we've changed the ownership and we've kind of done it in a way that I it's over but wink wink by the way I can call my lawyer anytime I want and find out what's going on with it well, here's the shit like Richard Burr right he called his broker dumped all his stocks right before the pandemic hit then he called his brother-in-law then his brother-in-law dumped all his stocks so like shouldn't be able to do that shady people should be able to do that bad people can get around this and it's also worth noting that Chris Collins a member of Congress from New York, maybe New Jersey, whatever. He's a Republican. Uh, went to jail for insider trading. Was pardoned Trump, by Trump. Trump, Trump, Trump <laughs> so, you know, there's there's not a lot of people are taking this seriously enough. But I do think this is appalling to your average voter. And by the well, way, like, uh, uh, appall- is it? Let's see. What percentage of voters? What percentage of voters approve of members of Congress trading stocks? Ready? Five. <laughs> five percent. Seventy-six percent. You're on the other side of a five percent issue. One of them was Nancy Pelosi with a little mustache. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable. This is a poll by the Convention of States. I don't know what that is. Uh, it's but it's they, the most accurate poll I've ever heard. Seventy-six percent of Americans think Congress has an Gold unfair standard. edge in financial markets. I mean, yeah, just uh, look. I'm skeptical when anybody is like, I own individual stocks. I'm trading stocks. Like these are people with insider. <laughs> anyone? No, I am. Like, I, like, like any, no, no. Stocks. Anybody? I'm saying that like <laughs> anybody outside of like the financial services industry, anybody who's not doing this for a living, like all of these, you know, there's all these ads all over television. Tell you should be trading stocks. Everybody should be trading stocks. Everybody should move. Like people should be in fucking index funds. Yeah, my, yeah. My, my money's under my mattress. Normal okay. people <laughs> should be in index funds. I mean, I can like look. One of the reasons Pelosi and her husband's portfolio has done really well in fairness to them, is because a, a long time ago they bought like Amazon and Microsoft and Apple and stocks that have just ripped the last 5, 10, 15 years, right? So that's probably why they're beating the market. Um, again, but that's like long-term investing. When you're talking about trading call options or trading puts, like I, that's gambling to me. And and the, it is again, gambling. So I think the point is it's like, it's not about public officials shouldn't be able to accumulate wealth or accumulate savings. It's that public officials should not have a fucking conflict of interest over between like the, the money they're making and the, the laws they're passing and, and, and the in the industries they're overseeing, right? Like that's the the core of this. Even if you have a situation where members of Congress are required to be in kind of funds that are kind of diversified so that they're not in any specific company too much, whatever the rules would be, even then you're still having a situation where members of Congress are dependent on the stock market, right? And the stock market is not the economy, right? It is still a conflict of interest for members of Congress to care more about the stock market than they do about the economy as a whole. There's limits to what we can actually do without just having people with integrity in Congress. But the idea that even like, okay, over the last kind of decade, Nancy Pelosi and her husband have had a lot of money in tech stocks. There's also been a time when those companies have accumulated a great deal of power where we've been unable to find ways to regulate them successfully. That's a conflict of interest. Even if it's even if you ban trading, even if you uh, put things into blind trust like that is a conflict of interest it's like we're we're like wasting our breath what articulate the downside the members of congress are sad that they can't <laughs> and by the way the other like, thing too is it's like they would say that you know this is I, I'll, I'll please yeah let's hear I hate this i hate let's that hear it this. forget this forget <laughs> the intro forget the throat clearing clip what's next there's probably there's probably some argument that and this isn't the conflict of interest stuff i think is there's no you know that's that's the most egregious but like you want people in public service, right? You do have to take a p- vow of poverty to be in public service. That's that's Except, the bullshit that you get. Yeah. Part of this part of the problem <laughs> you here though is an index and be fine. Well, that, that's what I, that will love. It was getting close to like you know no wealth accumulation. No, no, no. Anywhere. I wasn't saying that an index and or retirement and stuff like that. I think, I think I'm saying even that is a compromise. This. I think you want to design this in a way that you can build your retirement like normal people, but you can't be fucking trading stocks and making a lot of money, especially you know with industries that you have something to do with as a public official. Yeah, the point. The point. <laughs> Of course, I'm not uh, the 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 point is that even if you allow members of Congress to own uh, uh, mutual funds or index funds, that is still creating a kind of underlying conflict that we have to that that probably is something we have to accept. But like the piece of this about like oh they're going to have to plead poverty to go into Congress, it's like 
the the average wealth the wealth of members of Congress has been growing year after year, and the number of super wealthy Congress people in Congress has been growing year after year I, after I year. I think the average uh, net worth is like one point six million, which is well over. They're all the doing average fucking fine, especially this person. I, I mean, the, the, some people make the argument about staffers. That's another fucking story. These these are fantastically rich senators, especially. <laughs> I just think that look. Okay, maybe there's challenges with the blind trust stuff. We can work through that. I mean, the current system just creates no penalty for breaking the rules over and over that and is over the, again. And that is egregious. And I just think that people look at the way Congress polices itself through the Ethics Committee and see that it is utterly broken time and time again. Yeah, like we're we're talking about all these like a mutual fund versus the average voter is looking at this and they're like, these people are fucking crooks. <laughs> I yeah. send them to Congress. I find out they're making a lot of money on the side. They're supposed to be working for me. They don't do anything. They haven't fixed any of these fucking problems. And now they're saying that they want to keep trading stocks. It fucking makes people mad. Like, and I do think like, look, as the Democratic Party, as we head into the midterms or any time, you want to draw the clearest, cleanest possible line between a Democratic Party that uses its power to fight for everyone and a Republican Party that uses its power to fight for themselves and their rich friends. That's it. Right. Like we cannot be a party of highly educated, affluent voters who are only progressive on social and racial issues. We can't be that party. Right, we like, will get killed right now. Kevin McCarthy is to the left of Nancy Pelosi on stock trading right now at this exact moment. It's a one Look, and it's slimy, but he he knew. Of course, he was going to. So does, of course, he was going to say that as, as soon insincere. as she made that comment. Look. Kevin McCarthy jumped right on it. She, she is the smartest. She's one of the smartest, most effective speakers in history. This 100%. is a real blind spot, and it's also frustrating because, like, listen, she's she's had an amazing career. She's probably retiring in the next two, four, six years, right? I mean, she's worth one hundred fourteen million dollars. This is not going to be a big personal sacrifice. But the reason, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because it might sound like a small issue is just one thing nancy pelosi said but it's that larger point about the party being a party of working people and like to a lesser extent you saw this in the debate over salt right and which is like a tax cut that would go disproportionately to a lot of very wealthy people i know i know before we get all the comments there's gonna be some some middle class people who would benefit from salt for sure but like this we just we have to remember our roots as a party of working people and act like it <laughs> and this is this is a this is a perfect issue to do that on so they better pass the bill before the midterms <laughs> yeah i mean like i it, it does sort of seem like um it does not matter what leadership wants on this this train is coming yeah and she and like pelosi hasn't said that she's gonna opposes any of these bills or she's gonna try to block them yeah and I don't, I don't, I, mean, I don't know that at this point. She could also after, be after, after all the furor that she will. I mean, and like, I guess part of this could be like feeling like you are being accused of doing something wrong in the moment in that answer and being defensive because you didn't, and your husband's just good at his job or whatever. I don't know what it is, but yes, I, if she were to come out and say, "No, I will block this bill from passing," that would be a real problem. <laughs> that would be a whole different yeah. level. I will wager a bet that she won't yeah. do that. Yeah. Now, excuse me, I have to. Uh, restock my ice cream only freezer. There you go. It's funny you started with the truffles. I thought we were going to get the ice cream. I forgot about the ice cream till now. I forgot about the ice cream. Well, just uh, ensure we never get our calls returned by anyone in Congress. Good, yeah. good for us. <laughs> Maybe some of the poor ones. <laughs> if, you're, if you're poor, we... let us know. Um, well, that's it. That's all we have for today. Uh, thank you to Martin Luther King III for joining us. Oh, I'm sorry I made that joke about Nancy Pelosi right after an interview with Martin Luther King III. Yeah, well, that's something, you? that, that's something that you're going to have to live with. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we have. We'll talk to you guys later. Hot Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Madison Hallman, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. <laughs>